This is the second in a few sermons uh, such that we might have resolutions in this new year. So, Happy New Year again to you. We are thankful that our Lord has not left us without uh, encouragement. And today's resolution from the scriptures of the Lord here is right here in Matthew chapter 10, and that is the resolve to be courageous, to be courageous. And the Bible reveals uh, right here in Matthew chapter 10 that, that merely following God, uh, that merely involving yourself in becoming a disciple of Christ, that merely being a part of a faithful church, that, that merely being a, a father, son, a wife, a daughter, that merely being a faithful Christian worker or homemaker involves courage. We, we would uh, like it, perhaps, if there were some things that we could yet walk faithfully in and not need courage. But that doesn't appear to be the case, actually. It may draw us back. It may, uh, the, our own lack of courage in certain situations may have inclined us to believe that we shouldn't proceed uh, because carrying out what appears to be the right course of action requires courage. And certainly the Lord wouldn't require me to have courage to go forward. But that certainly doesn't seem to be the case. And over here in Matthew chapter 6, as a brief side note, the Lord Jesus Christ says as He continues the Sermon on the Mount, He says, Seek first the kingdom. The kingdom that you have been made a citizen of is not like the world. It isn't a better version, necessarily, of where you're living today. The kingdom of God is essentially different. It's a different place. It's a different way of life. The kingdom on earth, yes, you can proceed with all of your activities without the necessity of courage. But the kingdom of God is different. It's essentially different. It's not the same as where we are. And that's one of the things that is important as we consider Matthew here in his gospel in chapter 10. So again, we're looking at courage. The Cambridge Dictionary defines courage as the ability to control fear and to be willing to deal with something that is dangerous, difficult, or unpleasant. As I mentioned, it may not seem intuitive that it takes courage to follow Christ, to be a member of a church, to grow in holiness, to establish right priorities. But again, that would be for us to misunderstand what is the kingdom of God. That's why we affirm this idea that the Lord Jesus Christ has, in fact, chosen us to a life that may yet be quite inconvenient to live. But it's what He's called us to. And He's promised to invive us and encourage us with the strength. He has given to us the Holy Spirit such that we can walk with Him, not meagerly, not beggarly in that sense, but joyfully and cheerfully. But yet with courage we go forward. We march along with Him. We're soldiers of the cross, as it were, but not soldiers that drag along. So He is given to us. We know it takes courage to commit to a course of action directed by God's revealed will and His Word. In a society that mocks God with a nagging conscience that cries out, it doesn't matter what you do. It's important also that we see here that uh, this admonition, I'm calling it the second New Year resolution, if you will, to courage, is, is set in a certain context as well. It's one thing to be courageous in a vacuum, 
right? It's one thing uh, to, be, to be courageous when you're, when you're sitting in your armchair watching the football game. You say, well, I would have done that. Or it's easy to be courageous when you're watching someone do something difficult. You say, well, I would have done it this way. But that's not the way that we find this exhortation to be courageous. The exhortation to be courageous is in the context of, in Matthew chapter 10, them and they. It's a third person, plural, them and they. Well, who who are these people? What is the context of courage? I would draw your attention to verse 17 of Matthew 10. And I'm persuaded that here is the revelation of who the they is in our passage. These are men. Not all men, thankfully. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Verse 19, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that time. Brother will deliver brother over to death. The father, his child, children will rise against his parents. It is a sermon for another day, but nonetheless, let it be established in the context of being courageous, that the Lord Jesus Christ did not come to the earth to bring peace. Now that is a hard thing for a people that may not have really known peace and that we long for peace. And we may finish this sermon with the apostles on a little boat in the Sea of Galilee that long for peace. And it wasn't the Lord Jesus' primary intent that they enjoy peace, but that they enjoy Him. That they have Him. That they're drawn to Him. That they, that they would be with Him. And walk with Him. The providence of God. It's the name of our church. It was no mindless thing that you who began this fellowship would name it that. It certainly has an urgent importance to us. Our God has revealed Himself as a God who purposefully controls all things. I have appreciated John Piper's work on providence as well as... Louis Burkhoff's theology. My book is all falling apart now. But all the pages are there. Piper has helpfully described a distinction between providence and sovereignty, and that is simply this concept of purpose, purposefully controlling all things. And he goes on basically to say to control all things in his universe in order to humble human pride. To elevate worship, to destroy the pit of hopelessness. The providence of God should maintain the seaworthiness of our ship of faith, build our courage, grant joy in affliction, and deepen our love and trust in Him. This idea of providence is, uh, if you will, a great beast of burden for the Lord. And what I mean by that is it can carry a lot of weight. A lot of weight. If you want to consider it a, a backpack, children, inside this backpack of the Lord's providence is nothing less than humbling human pride. than elevating worship. You want to think about worshiping our Lord. 
with a sense of spiritual joy and cheerfulness, think and meditate upon the providence of the Lord. Have you ever felt hopeless? Have you ever felt discouraged? Often discouragement and hopelessness may yet be a good sign because it might indicate that you're coming to the end of yourself. This resolution involves you losing confidence in yourself and you gaining confidence in Christ. Persuaded that, again, the first aspect of this is humbling the pride of man to elevate worship, to destroy the the pit of hopelessness. If you would like to enter into life with a joy of the Lord and be done with hopelessness, rest yourself in the purposeful sovereignty of a loving God. Moment by moment by moment, God is saying, I have this. I'm for you. I'm with you. All will be well. You can follow me. You can trust me. You can trust my word. What I've said is true. What I've said is for you. What I said works. It's functional. It's efficient. It's effective. It's right. That's what God is saying. It should as I said, the providence of God should maintain the seaworthiness of our ship of faith. Some of you have been on ships at sea. And you've seen the mighty hand of God. And it is the providence of God that has kept those ships afloat. But you also need to recognize that it is also the providence of God that has sunk many of them. And that may be a rub for us, but nonetheless the point is is that we have a loving God who purposefully and intently from all time has worked out His purposes for His glory and for our good. The providence of God should build our courage. When you lack courage, why is that? When you're uncertain about a certain course of action or a thing that you should do, why is that? Well, it may be because you don't know what's going to happen. You have have no idea what the outcome is. Time and time again, the Lord told Joshua, be strong and courageous. Joshua only knew one thing. God wins. That's it. (laughs) That's all he knew. God wins. Now you be strong and courageous. And you go forward. God wins. You be faithful. You dig the ditches. You dig the trenches. You eat the cold meals. You go forward. You sleep in the rain. You rally the men. You train them. You care for your wives and families. You do this and go forward. I'm not telling you what the future is. And it's not because I don't know it. The Bible says He knows the end from the beginning. That's providence. That's the providence of God. He says, go forward. It grants joy and affliction. I am blessed to serve with Woody and Preston. We, together, as we are persuaded, make one man. I also have men who pastor me. And one of those men, when I asked him on Friday how he was doing, he said, 
I'm between swells right now. That's a nautical term. It means there's a certain calmness. I just got out of a storm and I expect that one is coming. Now, the Lord hadn't given him any intelligence per se that there was something coming his way. But he is a 75-year-old man who's been pastoring a church for 30 years after he retired from the Marine Corps. And so, he has a great confidence and experience to be able to say that, right now, I'm between swells. Great joy. He can grant joy and affliction and deepen our love and trust in Him. And so we look at our text here in Matthew chapter 26. Have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Again, this concept of having no fear, the purposeful sovereignty of God is here placed in the context of fear of following God, of being a slave of Christ in this fallen world. We want guarantees. We want some balance against the storm. We want it in writing. The Lord says that we are to have no fear. And why is that? Well, because all will be revealed, and it will not end well for those who select a temporal life over an eternal life. This is stated simply in a passage of Scripture that you likely know in Psalm 23.5, you prepare a table before me. In the presence of the righteous... Is that what it says? No, it doesn't say that. It says, you will prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And as the redeemed, you can be sure that the enemies of you are the enemies of God. And that's what our Lord was telling David. And ultimately us, of course. God's children are not forgotten. The Lord is superintending all of their affairs, though it may seem otherwise. As I mentioned before, in verse 26, have no fear of them. Of them. Have no fear of them. Have no fear of them. He'll tell us why in a minute. Verse 27, again, the context of following the Lord. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Not only is this a fearful time, but the Lord is saying, it is this time that we are to go public. We can trust Him with a conspicuous walk with the Lord. Now, in the day of Christ, we recognize that the Lord Jesus was very attentive to timing in His three-year ministry on earth. Sometimes we might wonder why He encourages someone who was healed not to say anything. Why He shrunk away from the crowds. Matter of fact, He was chastised occasionally for that. But even in His lifetime, He says, in Matthew chapter 10... What I have said in quietness, now is time to proclaim from the housetops. Now is the time, he says, to go public. Again, he he is building and building. He says, no, no, not only don't fear them. Don't fear them. Don't fear what they know. But now is the time to proclaim from the housetops that which 
Men, may cast you out from living. Verse 28, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. To bargain for a temporary earthly joy is no solace against an eternal death. Our eternal souls should always be our priority. Faithfulness to Christ always includes the smile of God. And you know, there are friends who endure difficulty and there are friends who don't. And what we know and what we have on record in the Scriptures is that it's only those who enter into difficulty that can enjoy the relationship that God intended. You want a lifelong combat buddy? You've got to hear the sound of bullets to do that. Otherwise, it's not there. The Lord Jesus obviously knew that. The crux of our passage here is right here in verse 29. And children, I would like for you to pay particular attention because there's a few little words here that are actually the centerpiece of this entire passage of Scripture and the doctrine upon which it rests. This grand doctrine of the providence of God is right here in verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Now, perhaps you could repeat after me this, and I only ask you to do that because it helps to sit it in your mind. But the phrase is, apart from your Father. Apart from your Father. Wow. What does that mean? What is St. Matthew telling us about? Is, is Is he merely telling us about the omniscience of God. Omniscience, a big word we don't use very much, but it means that God knows everything. Sparrows are considered very cheap and insignificant. Their activities in moment-by-moment lives are governed intentionally by God. Apart from your Father. The idea here is not merely that God knows everything. The absolute intention of this passage of Scripture and this phrase, apart from your Father, is that it would be a foundation for the very doctrine of the providence of God. This idea that it is in fact known that God, the Creator of the universe is the one who determines and not merely monitors, but determines by His own sovereign hand the flight and the life and death of a sparrow. Of a sparrow. When you grab that little fire ant on your finger, and you crush it just like that? God superintends that. You may say, well, I don't believe it. Well, I know it sounds unbelievable. But, friends, that's the providence of God. That's what we're saying. That's what the Bible is saying here. And there is tremendous safety and encouragement in this idea. 
Jesus directs us to consider the birds because He feeds them in Matthew 6.26 and to consider the lilies because He clothes them in Matthew 6.28-30. This wasn't to deepen our appreciation for the beauty of nature, but to free us from anxiety. Our Lord really considered it a reasonable argument that if God feeds the birds and He clothes the lilies, that He will certainly take care of you in the way He determines best. God's control of nature is direct. He makes grass grow on the hills, says Psalm 147. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, says Jonah chapter 1. The Lord God appointed a plant, says Jonah chapter 4. God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, Jonah 4.7. He brings forth the wind from His storehouses, Psalm 135. He it is who makes the clouds rise. He makes lightnings for the rain, Psalm 135. He rebuked the wind and the raging waves, Luke 8. One of the things John Piper helpfully brings out, you say, well, didn't the Lord paint a beautiful sunrise today? Yeah, and he did it yesterday too. Intentionally, purposefully. But there's something more about sunrises that you might should know. They happen continually. You see, there's a sunrise going on at every moment of the day. And you say, well, the Lord has simply built into the machinery of this earth that He has made. No, no. No, no. that is a deistic view of the sovereignty of God. And that has never enjoyed orthodoxy. But we affirm what the Scriptures say about the sovereignty of God. And that is that everything He does is purposefully, intentionally to display His own glory. Not that He might merely jazz us occasionally with a beautiful sunrise. But this is what He does. And this is how He acts. Everything that happens in God's universe is designed and carried out purposefully by Him and for the good of the redeemed. Yet again, we also know that the Lord gives and takes away as declared in Job 121. As grievous as it may sound, every sunrise locally that we enjoy also is met with the death of about 150,000 people. Because that's how many people die on this earth every day. And you want to say, well, God's providence was working for those that are still living, yeah? Well, yeah. But is no less provident in those that he has removed from the earth. God's pervasive providence can be shocking as we rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, as Romans 12 says. And that also means, as 2 Corinthians 6 says, that we will be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. You say, well, I don't like that. Well, friends, that's reality. The Scripture speaks to reality. It's experiential. It gives to us, finally, the understanding. You want to know what's happening? Read the Bible and trust yourself to the providence of God. Verse 30, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. The point of this statement isn't primarily to display the omniscience of God, the fact that He knows all things, but to display the fact that He knows us intimately. Some of you in here I know better than others. I don't know anybody's numerical count on here. But God does. And that's an expression of His intimacy. That's an expression of His devotion to us. 
It's an indication that not only God knows us intimately, but that He's, that he's directing all things, even through the will of man for our good. The challenges, the good times, the joys, even the sins God allows in your life, these are directed with purpose by God for your good and His glory. This doesn't mean God is merely an opportunist and can change bad things to good. It means He purposefully plans and uses even the difficulties, even the sins in your life for your own sanctification and for His glory. Verse 31, Fear not, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. As the redeemed, we really can go forward with settled calmness and certainty in following Christ. One of the obsessive disorders in this culture is idolizing certainty. The doctrine of divine providence is a gift from God to give us certainty, not in ourselves, not in our bank accounts, not in our jobs, but in God Himself and in His sovereign, all-encompassing purposes and plans and actions. Now, in our time remaining, I would like to draw your attention to a few of the paragraphs in our own confession. Chapter 5 of the London Baptist Confession is on this doctrine of providence. And so, it would be very important for us, and it was deemed, of course, important by those who have gone before us, this is not in the handout, by the way, that you have in your, in your bulletin. The first paragraph in the Confession, chapter 5, God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures and things, from the greatest to the least, by his perfectly wise and holy providence to the purposes for which they were created. He governs according to His infallible foreknowledge and the free and unchangeable counsel of His own will. His providence leads to the praise of the glory of His wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. Look, I know that some of these words are kind of long, and it seems difficult for me to read these, but I want to tell you the difference between you walking out of this room with confidence in a loving, faithful Savior and you not, and you walking out of here with the same sense of hopelessness and discouragement and wonder and amazement about what in the world is going to happen next. The difference between those two things is going to be how God works His Word in your Life in the next few minutes. Pay no attention to the man behind the pulpit. Consider Jesus, as Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1 says. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. This idea that God is the good creator of all things, that He upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures, you've got to know that there is a distinction between setting something in motion and walking away from it and maintaining its every activity. God maintains every single activity. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 10 that apart from your father, the sparrow doesn't move. He doesn't live. He doesn't die. He doesn't breathe. He doesn't eat. The Bible says apart from your father is the action of a sparrow. And if there was ever... Any logic that the Lord Jesus Christ used, this is absolutely the definition of moving from the lesser to the greater. Will He not also for you do all things? 
Isaiah 46, 10 and 11, the Bible says, Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, I will bring it to pass, I have purposed, and I will do it. When I checked into Destroyer Squadron 26 in Norfolk, my supervisory chaplain was a Jewish rabbi. And he noticed that I had my Bible in my back pocket, and he said, that's very good. I'm glad you have that. And he said this to me, as only an old Jewish rabbi might say. He said, we make plans. And God laughs. We make plans. And God laughs. This is not an admonition for you not to make plans. But it is an admonition for you to understand the I, 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 I in Isaiah chapter 46 is not you. It isn't you. You might decide to listen to yourself someday about how many times you say I. God says, I will do this, and I will do that, and I will have all of my purposes met, and I am the provident one, I am the one in charge, I have all of your well-being at heart, I will take care of you, I am your Lord and Savior. Psalm 135.6, whatever the Lord pleases, He tries to do. Is that what it says? Uh, no. Psalm 135.6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth and the seas and all the deeps. Those odd little fish that you'll never see because they never come above a thousand feet. God's taking care of all those also. In Burkhoff's terminology, this concept of concurrence also is involved in providence, the providence of God. Concurrence, the cooperation of divine power with all other powers. You rightly ask the question, how is God in charge when I do what I want? That's a very good question. That's a very good question. And if anybody tells you they understand the answer, you might should be concerned. We simply know it's true. God works in and through us in such a way as to bring together His own power and all of those other powers that He has created to accomplish His purposes and plans. This is the idea of concurrence. And the Bible says, uh, for instance, uh, well, in the chapter 2 of the Confession, uh, section 5, all things come to pass unchangeably and certainly in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, who is the first cause. Thus nothing happens to anyone by chance or outside of God's providence, yet by the same providence God arranges all things to occur according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or in response to the other causes. Acts 2.23, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You say, there it is. The Father was looking for an opportunity to get the Lord Jesus up on that cross and He took full advantage of Judas and the other high priests there. Is that what happened? No, 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 no. No. From the foundation of the world, the Lord planned that using the very desires of sinful men. Proverbs 16.33, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Genesis 8.22, While the earth remains, 
Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Section 4 of London Baptist Confession 5 there, the providence of God. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God are so thoroughly demonstrated in His providence that His sovereign plan includes even the first fall in every other sinful action, both of angels and humans. God's providence over sinful actions does not occur by simple permission. Instead, God most wisely and powerfully limits in other ways, arranges, and governs sinful actions through a complex arrangement of methods. He governs sinful actions to accomplish His perfectly holy purposes, yet He does this in such a way that the sinfulness of their act arises only from the creatures and not from God, because God is altogether holy and righteous. He can neither originate nor approve of sin. Now, part of this, again, there's some complications here, but nonetheless, we, if we're to live cheerfully and joyfully in this life, if we're to be a people who don't die of gastrointestinal failure because we deal with stress in a very unbiblical way, if we're a people that want to walk joyfully with the Lord Jesus, we must stake our claim on this idea. Yes, God is the first cause in many things, and there are second causes and means by which He does things. But again, the confession here, as well as the Scriptures are indicating to us, the second causes are all completely in the control of God. It's just that He has a relationship with sin that's very different than ours. We have a relationship with sin because we're sinners. And we are the ones who rightly are held guilty for our sins. But God even yet uses those. Romans eleven thirty two through 34 God has consigned all to disobedience that He may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Psalm 76.10, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. O God, may it not be our wrath that praises Him, but yet He will gain praise from the wrath of man. Genesis 50.20, Here we have the words of Joseph, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You want to study the providence of God, look no further than Genesis and the story of Joseph, which covers a good solid third of the entire book. Psalm 50, 21, perhaps... One of the pinnacle passages in the mystery as well as the providence of God. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Our God called us to Himself. He displays His own glory. He is the Master and Creator of all things, including Providence Reformed Baptist Church. You have nothing to fear as we trust in God. Does He bring trouble? Yes. Does He purposefully use it for our good and His glory? Yes. As promised... In Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. The Bible says, On that day when evening had come, Mark 4, 35, He said to them, Let us go across to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took Him 
with them in a boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Now, let's think about this, children. Let's make sure we get the picture. Are you with me here? Little boat. Little boat. 20 feet, maybe. 30 feet. Might have had a sail. Probably had some paddles. Now, the Sea of Galilee, it's a magnificent body of water. Uh, referred to often as a sea. Some places and some maps you might see refer to it as a lake. The Sea of Galilee uh, is a fresh water, body of water. It's big. It's notorious for storms. But here they are in this little boat and the waves are crashing and the boat is filling up with water. It's not like the bay that we used to live on before we moved here, where if you fell out of the boat, you could stand up. It's not like that in the Sea of Galilee. You fall out of the boat, or the boat sinks, you die. Frantic! And where is Jesus? As a side note, if you want to understand a little bit of physical exhaustion, perhaps you should look no further than right here in Mark chapter 4, verse 38. He was in the stern asleep on the cushion. There's a tired man. A very tired man. And he says, Teacher, they woke him. And they said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care that we are perishing? What's the implication? Jesus is thinking in his mind, you know, you guys are sort of okay for a while, but this is really a drag. Maybe I could pick up a few other guys because I can just walk on this stuff. That's not what he said. And you want to see a great indication of the accommodation of the Lord Jesus Christ for others. In verse 39, he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And I'm personally persuaded that the great story in this passage actually is not the control that Jesus has over the wind and waves. It isn't. I think you're missing the point personally if you stop there. It's this. The Lord Jesus, while they may have indicted Him with their question, do you not care we are perishing? He also has one for them in verse 40. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Courage. Courage for what? To follow the Master? What is Jesus saying? The big new story here is, have you guys yet learned that with me, everything's okay? 
You want safety? <laughs> I'm not giving you safety. No! I'm not giving you safety. You're going to get wet in this life. You're in a little boat on a big sea. And Jesus says, this is not about safety. This is about me following me. About not being afraid of what you see. Of, yes, recognizing the beauty of your sensory capabilities, but nonetheless, Jesus could also have said, where is your spiritual sensitivity? Do you not know that the master of the wind and the waves is with you? What you don't need at this moment, most greatly right now, isn't actually a calm sea. It is, in fact, faith to trust me in a little boat in a storm. You know, I found out something very, very important a few years ago. When I was in the rain, working in the rain, I found out something very, very important. I found out that I was waterproof. It didn't matter if I got wet. There's a story about a a gentleman on a horse who encountered a shepherd boy on his travels in a road and it was raining. And the gentleman said to the little boy who was a shepherd, I say little, he doesn't necessarily have to be little in the story, but nonetheless, he said, how do you like the weather today? And he said, I like it just fine. Because it's the weather that God has determined that I'm going to have today. And so I've decided that, you know what, it's okay for me to get wet today. Because it's raining. And I work outside. And so I'm going to get wet. But who am I with? I'm with Jesus. And we're getting wet together. And that's the story of God's providence for us. Let us pray.